Uh, join me once again in a brief time of prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, as we prepare to uh, walk through this wonderful epistle penned by your Apostle Paul under the authority of the Holy Spirit to the church in Corinth. Father, we pray that you would guide our minds and our thoughts. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide, our instructor. And Lord, we pray that as we begin with these first three introductory verses from the Apostle Paul. Father, we pray that you would enable us to unpack them rightly. We pray that we would rightly understand um, Paul's meaning and his primary message to the church in Corinth, and that we would see that that is a message that quite easily applies to us. Father, we pray now that you would clear our minds of all the cares of this world that would seek to distract us from you and from your word. We pray that you would enable us to focus upon your glory. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as we begin to walk uh, through this series on 1 Corinthians, Um, This book is essentially, I'll just get right to the point, this book is essentially a book on unity within the church. It is a book about unity and order and harmony within the church, both in Corinth and within the church um, universal, within all churches. What we will read in 1 Corinthians Is not something that's simply applied to that local body of believers, but applied to all bodies of believers um, within the first century, but also to every local assembly thereafter. And so when we think about this book and we we think about uh, the church in Corinth, uh, yes, the church in Corinth was a mess, right? But what church isn't? Uh, Anytime you have uh, any organization that is comprised of sinful people, there is bound to be problems, right? If you want a perfect church, then you can't have people in it. Um, And so, yes, the church of Corinth is a mess. And and we we tend to really blow that up because it's such a big book. And so we think, boy, they must have really been a mess. And Paul had to really straighten them out. And there is this tendency to sort of look down on them and to maybe point our finger at them. You know, boy, those those poor Corinthians, they were such a mess. Paul had to write this lengthy rebuke against them. But we've got to understand that the Corinthians, the church in Corinth, that these were relatively young Gentile believers. They'd only been Christians for a few years. By the time Paul writes this letter, it's about, about three years, in fact. And they are coming out of an extreme pagan society, right? So we've got to understand the background of this book before we um, cast any aspersions upon the church in Corinth. 
And so Paul, Paul writes this letter to correct things. True, writes this letter to correct things that they are doing wrong, but also to teach them what they should be doing and what a biblical church should look like and what a biblical church should function like. So it's a book that's worthy of study for any church. And so before we discuss, however, before we discuss and get into the central theme of this book, let's look at the culture and the background of uh, the city of Corinth and the church in Corinth, because I think that's going to be important and foundational for rightly understanding this book. So first of all, Corinth was a city that was uh, established in the 6th century BC. It was a Greek city-state, and if you remember your Greek history, uh, Greece was not a nation uh, in the traditional sense of the word. Uh, before Alexander the Great, they were just a, uh, just a, a group of Greek city-states. They were autonomous, they governed themselves, and they really weren't united in any sense. It wasn't until Alexander the Great rises to power and then unites them, and then there is the advancement of the Greek empire under Alexander the Great. And thus, during the second century, Corinth joins together with other Greek city-states in order to resist the advancement of the Roman Empire. The Romans have risen to power. They are growing. They are moving across uh, the Aegean Sea, and they are moving, uh, expounding eastward and northward and westward. And as a result, um, the city of Corinth gave them a tremendous battle and resistance. And so in 146 BC, the city is captured by the Romans and is razed to the ground completely and really lies in ruins and is essentially a ghost town for the next 100 years. Nobody lives there. It's just, just there. The ruins are there, and it's essentially a ghost town for the next 100 years until 44 BC when Julius Caesar reestablishes Corinth as a Roman colony. And the way in which he does that, because he understands the, uh, the significant, the, uh, the trade significance of Corinth, the, the, the uh, strategic military significance of the city of Corinth. And so he wants that to be a flourishing city, so he reestablishes it as a Roman colony, and he does so by bringing in Roman citizens who are the first ones to basically re-inhabit uh, the city of Corinth, to begin to rebuild it, to reestablish it. And so the city of Corinth then is a city, and of course, eventually, Greeks start to move back into the city of Corinth. And so the city of Corinth essentially is a, is a large city comprised of a significant number of Romans, Roman citizens, who are, of course, very proud of their heritage, and a significant number of Greek citizens who are also equally as proud of their heritage. I mean, these are two groups of people who come from a very proud cultural background, right? I mean, a debate between a Roman and a Greek citizen basically became a debate between who was more civilized and who was more intelligent, right? Who could quote more philosophers and poets? So this is the kind of people that inhabit the city of Corinth. Corinth uh, was a port city. 
on the southern edge of the Corinthian Gulf, which is on the northern edge of the Achaean Peninsula, right? So there's this little peninsula that shoots off the bottom of, uh, of the Greek, the Greek uh, mainland, and, uh, and uh, Corinth was on the northern edge of that Achaean Peninsula. So it was a port city, and it uh, had a population of about 100,000 people, which is a large city in that day and age. I mean, that's, that's no small city even today, just to give you a point of reference, according to the 2020 uh, census. Uh, Belton has a population where we are located of a little more than 20,000 people, and Temple has a population of a little more than 80,000 people. So think Temple, Belton together. This is the city of Corinth, and it is a, it is a port city. It sits at the base of Mount uh, Acro-Corinth, which has an elevation of nearly 1,900 feet, and thus, the city is fed by a freshwater spring that flows out of the mountain, and it flows all year long, and that's part of the reason how the city is able to grow as massive as it does. It has a continuous source of fresh water that flows out of uh, the mountain. And so, the city of Corinth was a flourishing crossroads for sea traffic because of its location and because it's a port city. So, when you think of the size of Corinth, and you think of the fact that it is a port city, okay, think in terms of uh, San Francisco Harbor or um, think in terms of Boston Harbor or New York Harbor. Lots of ships coming in and going out from all around the Mediterranean world, uh, coming in, unloading their cargo, loading new cargo. So it was a melting pot of lots of different ideas and cultures and religions that just all mingled together. And they all just embraced all these different ideas that were coming into the city of Corinth. The result is that it was a place of many gods, many lords, many religions. It was home of the temple to Aphrodite, for example, the goddess of love, whose temple housed and employed more than a 1,000 temple slaves and prostitutes because that's how you worship the goddess Aphrodite. You would go to the temple, you would pay a certain fee, and then you would engage in sexual intercourse with one of the temple prostitutes as a way of worshiping Aphrodite. It was the home to the occult to the Roman emperors where the emperors of Rome were worshiped as gods. There was this little cult following there where they argued that you know, the, the, the Roman emperors should all be deified. We should worship them that we might have blessings upon our city. Corinth was also the home to the cult of Poseidon. Poseidon was the god associated with the sea and earthquake, which is understandable, right? If it's a port city, many people there make their living from the ocean. And so the one god that you wanted to make sure and appease was Poseidon, right? We want good weather, we want good seafaring weather because our livelihood is dependent upon it. It was home to the temple of Apollo. Uh, this is the god that is associated with uh, the bow in terms of hunting, music, and divination. And it was also home to the temple of uh, As Asclepios. It's a difficult word. Asclepios, which is the god of healing. 
if you wanted to be healed. These were just the more popular ones. Uh, there were literally dozens of temples, hundreds and hundreds of statues that were erected to the various gods that they worshipped. And the worship of all of these gods, the worship of all of these gods was fully integrated in Corinth into their government, their education, their civic affairs, their social clubs, their business, their trade. In other words, the idea of the separation of uh, government and religion was just completely foreign to them, right? All of this influenced how they ran their government and their civic affairs and their businesses and their education and everything else that they did. In fact, there were so many gods and temples in the city of Corinth. One historian that I read said that when uh, Pausanias, the first century Greek historian, when he wrote about the city of Corinth, he said, quote, Corinth read like a tour guide of a pagan monumental sacred site. Right? It was like a tour guide. His writings of Corinth read like a tour guide of pagan monumental sacred sites. Like everything that you wanted to know, pretty much about every kind of uh, a pagan religion and false god and deity that was out there. I mean, you just visit Corinth and, and there, it's all there. It's all there. I mean, Corinth sat you know, midway between Rome and the Eastern world. All of the ships from around the Mediterranean Sea, including from North Africa, would dock there and unload and reload. So it was a hodgepodge of various religions and spirituality. And so this is the world of Corinth. And this is the city in which Paul planted a church. And Paul plants this church during his second missionary journey that is recorded in Acts chapter 18. And this is around the year A.D. 51 or 52. We're not sure exactly when, but this would be around A.D. 51 or 52. He plants the church in Corinth during his second missionary journey. And while he is there, he meets Priscilla and Aquila. We read about that in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. These are fellow tent makers who had been expelled from Rome by Claudius Caesar because there was problems within the synagogue that had resulted as... Christianity coming in, it's viewed as a sect of Judaism. So there's all kinds of conflict between uh, the Christians and the Jews. And so it's possible that um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila are, are Christians when they are expelled from Rome, though we're not certain about that. They certainly are by the time they meet Paul. And they are fellow tent makers, and they uh, stay there with Paul in Corinth, and they help him to do ministry. And they are very valuable to Paul's ministry there. It's also during Paul's third missionary journey when he returns to Corinth that he meets Apollos. And Apollos is there in Corinth, and you all remember uh, him. We read about that, Acts chapter 30. And uh, Apollos is, of course, he's, uh, he's an uh, apologetic. He's, uh, he's trained in theology in the Old Testament. Uh, when he first meets Priscilla and Aquila, he's not really familiar with uh, Jesus Christ. And so they share the gospel with him, and he comes to a saving knowledge of Christ. And so this is the setup, and this is how this church comes into being, and this is why Paul is familiar with them. And from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, we know from that verse that Paul writes this letter from Ephesus. He says that, 1 Corinthians 16, 9. He's writing this letter from Ephesus. Near the end 
of his three-year ministry, again, recorded in Acts chapter 30, verse 21. He actually says that there in Acts chapter 30, verse 21. And we also know that this is just before Pentecost, right? He identifies that in 1 Corinthians 16, 9 and 10. This is just before Pentecost, which means that Paul is writing this letter in the spring sometime in A.D. 53 to 55. So it's early spring, right? We know Pentecost happens around uh, March, March or April. It, uh, it occurs uh, uh, 50 days after the first day of Passover, and, uh, and he identifies that he would like to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. And so we know that he's close uh, to that. We also know that this is not the first letter that Paul has written to the church in Corinth. We know that from one verse, really, but it's quite telling. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Well, what letter does he tell him that? He's not referring to 1 Corinthians because in the first uh, four chapters, he doesn't talk about that at all. So when Paul says, I wrote to you in my first letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, he is referencing some prior letter that he's written to the church at Corinth that no longer exists. God in his divine providence has seen fit that it doesn't exist. That does not mean that it calls into question the inerrancy and the authority of what we have contained in Scripture. It does mean that Paul, as an apostle who is also human and sinful, which he acknowledges in Romans chapter 7, that not everything Paul says and writes is the authoritative word of God. As Paul walked around and had conversations with people, he's not speaking every word that comes out of his mouth is the word of God. It's also likely that in Paul's lengthy ministry, he wrote hundreds of letters, maybe even thousands of letters, But God saw fit in his divine providence to preserve the ones that he wanted for the church to know and to study uh, until the return of Christ. And so that first letter to the church in Corinth uh, no longer exists. So 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. And I guess you could say 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians, at least as far as we know. And so he writes this letter really to do three things is why he's writing this letter. Number one, to correct misunderstandings in his first letter. You see that if you're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, 9, and 10. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. So clearly they misunderstood something from his first letter. And so he writes this letter to correct. That's not what I meant, okay? You misunderstood my first letter, and so he writes this one to correct that. Secondly, Paul writes this letter to respond to certain reports that he has received from messengers, people that have come from uh, that church. You see that, for example, in chapter 1, verse 11 He writes, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. It's been reported to me. So I need to respond to these reports. You see that in chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexually immorality among you. You see that again in chapter 11, verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear 
that there are divisions among you. And, uh, and so uh, Paul has received certain reports about the church. And he says, I've, I've got to respond to this, right? I need to write to them and deal with some of these issues that I'm hearing about. Paul has a great affinity for this church because he planted the church. He was the one that came in and made the first converts, of course, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and then uh, starts a small church there and establishes it and uh, puts leadership in place. The third reason he writes this letter is to answer certain questions that they have uh, for Paul. Apparently, they had written to Paul, and they've asked him certain questions. Remember, this is a new church. These are new believers that are coming out of a pagan. So they, they did not grow up with any idea of Christianity or the Old Testament. All they know is paganism. They don't have a Bible. They may have a copy of the Old Testament. They may have some believing Jews in their midst that maybe they can read the Old Testament. But by and large, we don't know what to do. You know, how do we do church? And so they write to Paul and they ask him certain questions. And that becomes clear by certain Uh, Again, key verses in the book, chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And then he'll go on to talk about marriage. Obviously, they had questions about marriage. What do we do about that? We see that same kind of language in chapter 8 regarding food sacrificed to idols. Now concerning food offered to idols. We see that again in chapter 12, verse 1. Regarding spiritual gifts. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, right? The implication is that they've asked them questions about these things. Okay, now concerning what you are worried about. You see that as well in chapter 16, verse 1, regarding uh, the taking up of offerings for the saints. And you'll see that same language again in chapter 16, verse 12, regarding Apollos. Apparently, they are concerned about Apollos, so they've asked about him. And Paul waits to the end to say, okay, now let me address your concern about Apollos. Thus, the theme that unites this entire letter together is unity. Unity. Unity in the gospel, unity in mind, unity in heart, unity in spirit, unity in love. And we'll see that quite powerfully when we get to chapters uh, 11, 12, and 13. And we believe this, I believe this, because the word division is a word that uh, kind of bookends this entire letter. He starts by bringing that up, and then he ends by bringing that up. You see that in chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. He'll say it again in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Is Paul crucified for you, or are you baptized in the name of Paul? Right? He's addressing the issue of division right off the bat. And then toward the end of the letter, he will bring that up again in chapter 11, verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And then he'll say it again in chapter 12, verses 24, right in the middle of 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, 
that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. The church is one body. There shouldn't be divisions in the church of any kind. We should be unified in the gospel, unified in purpose, unified in spirit and mind and love, and harmoniously working together. Thus, this book is about how Christians can and ought to get along, about how the church can and should be unified and healthy and harmonious. This book is a very practical book in many ways, very practical. But it's also a book that is rich in theology, and we'll get into that as we walk through it. All right, with that as my intro and the background to this book, let's look at our text. Verse 1, Paul begins by saying, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes. So now, this is a common way for first century letters to be written. This is not unique. Uh, This letter is written from person A to person B, and then there's a greeting which is verse 3, grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is interesting about this, however, is the way in which Paul introduces himself in verse 1, and it's also interesting the way in which he distinguishes himself from Sosthenes. He begins by saying, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ. So he starts by reminding them that he is not an apostle because this is some elected office that he ran for. He's not an apostle because he chose to be an apostle or because he was more worthy of it, deserving of it than anyone else. He wants them to understand that God called him to be an apostle, that he is an apostle writing with the authority of God because God sovereignly willed it. Now, this is a common way for Paul to open up his his letters, to identify himself as an apostle of Christ or an apostle of God by the will of God. And he does that really in all of his letters, I think, for the same reason. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to deal with some really difficult issues. Paul is going to issue commands that many Christians even today find difficult to swallow. Really? Really? I mean, are we supposed to take this literally? Surely he doesn't mean this literally. So Paul wants to understand. He wants the church in Corinth to know, and subsequently by the Holy Spirit, for all of us to know that what we are reading in this book comes from God. And so Paul is essentially saying, if you don't like what I write, understand your fight is not with me right? Your fight is with God. And Paul will remind them of that uh, later on toward the end of the book, chapter 14, verses 37 and 38. Paul will say this, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, if anyone doesn't recognize my authority, Paul says, if anyone does not recognize this, He is not recognized. 
Paul wants to be clear right from the very beginning. This is coming from God. You need to know this. He also distinguishes himself from Sosthenes, right? Um, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, this should not be taken to mean that this letter was uh, co-written by Paul and Sosthenes. I don't think that's what Paul intends. I think that Sosthenes probably was some important figure to the church in Corinth. They knew him well. And, uh, and so Paul is basically letting them know that, hey, Sosthenes is here with you. Maybe they wondered. Remember, in that day and age, it was difficult to keep track of people. People would leave to go just 100 miles away, and you may never hear from them again. Right? News traveled slowly. So they may have been wondering, how is Sosthenes? Is he still with Paul? And so Paul opens this letter by letting them know that Sosthenes is still here with me, and he is doing well. We also don't know if this is the same Sosthenes that is talked about in Acts chapter 18, verse 17. There's a, there's a whole commotion that, that uh, starts in, in Athens, and so Paul leaves, and, uh, and uh, um, Paul is not arrested and prosecuted by the government there. And so then Sosthenes, who is the leader of the synagogue, is pulled out into the public and is beaten uh, by the Jews. We're not really sure why when you read the text. Is it because he was a believer who supported uh, Paul's ministry? Did he, did he uh, believe the message of Paul? Or is it because Sosthenes failed to bring about a conviction for Paul and Paul gets away? And so they're like, we're going to blame you for it. And so they beat him. Uh, we don't really know if this is the same Sosthenes. could be someone different. But then Paul continues in verse 2. And he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And so there's really uh, four things that Paul is doing here in verse 2 that are significant for our understanding of this book and, and really for us as well. First of all, he wants them to know uh, that his authority comes from God, right? That's very clear. He makes that clear in verse 1. But secondly, he wants them to know that the church in Corinth belongs to God. He wants them to understand that this is not your church. He says to the church of God. God, that is the church that belongs to God, that is in Corinth, right? He doesn't just say to the church in Corinth. He says to the church that belongs to God in Corinth. And this is important for them to understand because as we work through this book, Paul is going to drive home the fact that because this church does not belong to you, Because this church belongs to God, you do not have the right to do whatever you want with that church. That's a problem with many churches even today, right? We get this idea that this is our church, right? This is our church building. We can do whatever we want in this church building, use it for whatever we want. It's ours. We built it. It was our money that brought it about. And in terms of worship, we can do whatever we want in worship, right? This is our church. We get to decide how we want to worship God. 
Paul is making clear, this is not your church. This church doesn't belong to the deacons. It doesn't belong to the elders. This church belongs to God. And thus, God alone has the right to order it, to govern it, and to determine how worship ought to be done within it. That's really what 1 Corinthians is all about, helping them understand that important truth. Thirdly, he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, right? To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Why does he say that? Because the church belongs to God, so he's offering them the reason. Here's why the church doesn't belong to you. Here's why the church belongs to God. The church belongs to God because of her union in Christ. The church is sanctified in Christ. Therefore, the church rightly belongs to Christ. Apart from Christ, there is no church. The word sanctified, by the way, comes from the Greek word hagios. It's where we get our word holy from. Same word is used uh, behind the word saints, holy, holiness, sanctified, sanctification, right? All of those English words have the same basic uh, root Greek word, which is the word hagios, which primarily means holy. And to be holy, when something is holy, In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, to be holy means that that person or that thing is intended to be completely devoted to God. The priests in the Old Testament were holy because they existed to be devoted to God, to his glory and to his ministry. The temple was holy because it was devoted to God. The church is holy. Believers are holy because God saves us in order that we might live a life that is completely devoted to his glory. And therefore, so should the church. Thus, the church belongs to God because he has sanctified her by means of her union with Christ. But also, up front, Paul wants to communicate to them that the church rightly consists of those who have been sanctified. Right? To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. You have, called, you have been called to be holy. That is what God wants you to do. That's how he wants you to live. He wants you to live a life, and he wants us to have a church that is completely and utterly devoted to the glory and the worship of God. Fourthly, he says that they are called to be saints together, right? Called to be saints together with all those who in every place, all those in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul wants to make clear to them that you, church in Corinth, are not the only church. You are not the only true church. See, Paul understands he knows who he's dealing with, right? Greeks and Romans were extremely arrogant. They were extremely prideful. If they did anything, they always did it better than the rest of the world did. Paul wants them to understand the church is comprised of all believers. 
Everyone who believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is a part of this one universal, invisible church of God along with you. Corinth, you've not cornered the market on what it means to be a, a biblical church in the eyes of God. That's an important lesson for all of us, right? We all need to remember that because all Christians, all churches can be tempted with uh, becoming arrogant or prideful in the way that they do church, right? And it kind of reminds me of a, a joke I heard years ago. I know I was told in preaching 101, always be careful about telling jokes in a sermon. But it's humorous. I hope you'll find it humorous. It kind of makes the point. And, of course, the theology is completely wrong in this joke, right? It's a joke. But there's a guy, a believer, who dies, and he goes to heaven. And uh, he's being led to the mansion that he's going to spend eternity in. And as he's walking by one mansion, there's just all of this music coming and hooping and hollering and shouting and praise of hallelujah. And he says, what, what, what is that? And the angel says, well, that's the Pentecostal mansion. I mean, they just, they are just partying forever. I mean, they just cannot stop being so excited about being here. They walk past another mansion, and there's just this pipe organ coming out, right? This wonderful pipe organ is playing. What is that? Well, that's the Lutheran mansion. I mean, they love their pipe organ. Boy, they are just, they just, that's all they do is play the pipe organ and those wonderful old hymns. Then they walk by another mansion, and there's just these uh, classic hymns that are being played with just a piano, and they can hear the voices coming out. And the guy says, well, what, what mansion is that? And the angel says, that's the Reformed Baptist mansion. They think they're the only ones here. <laughs> right? It can be so easy to think, why doesn't everybody do church the way we do? Why doesn't everybody believe what we believe regarding the sovereignty of God? Why doesn't everybody have the kind of church that we have? Well, you're obviously just not reading their Bibles. <laughs> Be careful, beloved. Right? Be careful about thinking we are the only ones who study Scripture. We are the only ones who rightly understand God. We are the only ones who rightly do church in a way that is God-honoring and God-glorifying. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. There is one church. There is one body. We need to remember that. Right? This is the danger of the church in Corinth. They were arrogant, prideful, and that's what caused so much of their division. Paul has to rein in that pride. This is important because here Paul is introducing the doctrine of the universal church and the local church. He's introducing the doctrine of the invisible church and the visible church, where we, which we will explore more as we walk through this book. So I'm just going to sort of throw that out there for your um, mental digesting. But the church in Corinth uh, is a church, and they are a church along with every other church. And thus, as we go through this book, we're going to learn 
what a healthy uh, biblical church should function like, what a healthy biblical church should look like. And so then Paul concludes this introduction with a blessing and a prayer in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, as I said before, is about to write some very difficult things in this letter. They're going to have difficulty accepting them. And and you see that if you read 2 Corinthians, he starts to get attacked. Like, why should we listen to this guy? He knows he's going to write some difficult things, but he wants him to, to know up front that this isn't a rebuke. I'm not angry with you, church in Corinth. He's offering a prayer to them. I am praying for you as a church, as individual believers, as you read this book, that you will experience the grace and the peace of God. Paul wants them to understand that he truly wants what's best for them. So he's praying that they will experience these things. He's not taking an iron-fisted approach toward the church in Corinth, unlike the church in Galatia, right? But they kind of needed it. Paul tries to be as gentle as he could as, as he wrote this letter. And, uh, and as we see that, and in fact, we'll see it in the very next section, uh, unlike the church in Galatians, he'll, the very next section, he starts by giving thanks for the church in Corinth. He's truly thankful for them. And uh, we'll look at that uh, next week. But here's what we have to notice in these opening lines of this letter. And this is where we really get this driving point from. And I actually underlined these phrases in my Bible with a red pen. In verse 1, we see the phrase, of God, of Christ Jesus. In verse 2, of God, in Christ Jesus. And in verse 3, from God. In these three short verses, Paul writes that the church is of God, of Christ Jesus, of God, in Christ Jesus, and from God. I think he's making something emphatically clear, right, as he begins this letter. That is, that the church does not belong to us. It belongs to God. The universal church belongs to God. This church belongs to God, right? It doesn't belong to the elders. The main role of elders is that we're the ones who go to the Bible and say, the church belongs to God. Does God say we can do this in the church? This ministry, the use of the building, what does God say? The church belongs to God. We want to use it in a way that is honoring to him, and worship him in a way in which God prescribes. Thus, there is one church, one authority. There is one God, one authority, one church, and God has the right to order his church as he sees fit. And we dare not, we dare not make the church into something that we want it to be. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you. We thank you for the church that Jesus Christ purchased with his own blood, 
We thank you that the church and all believers are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would uh, bear in mind the lessons that Paul is communicating in just these opening verses, that we, the church, and the visible church, the physical church, it all belongs to you. We were redeemed, and we are created to worship you and to be devoted to you. And we pray, Lord God, for us as a church, Tapestry Community Church, that we would be just such a church, and we pray that you would ever keep us humble, Lord God, as we worship you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we go to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is a reminder to us. Um, Obviously, it reminds us of... um, the fact